When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 251 today. Uh, Maurice is sick, so shout out to Maurice. Brother, love you. Hopefully you feel better soon. Um, And we'll get him back on here as soon as he's feeling better. But I'm really excited about uh, the episode today because this is somebody I consider a close friend, somebody that I've met through doing the podcast four years ago-ish. and she's become one of my, you know, go-to people to discuss all this kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, I'm really, really excited to have Sandy on our show today. Um, and if you're interested, you can follow Sandy on Twitter. I have the link to her Twitter down below. Uh, so go follow her and check her out uh, before we get started. Uh, if you want to support the show, I'm not going to go through the whole spiel, but uh, you can go hit our link tree link, and we've got merch store, Patreon. Um, you know, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple podcast or Spotify. Uh, there's plenty of ways to support the show. So go click on that, go do that. And, um, yeah, I, I really appreciate everybody's love and support lately. And if you're interested, I've been doing a lot of Twitter spaces, um, lately and, uh, shout out to Shane. I just added Shane, um, as a producer on our show. So if anybody follows Shane or old vet on, uh, Twitter, show him some love too. Uh, But uh, yeah, so welcome on Mind Escape. Sandy, how are you? Fine, thanks. How are you? Good. Um, So we have kind of a little bit of a history here. We've been going back and forth now for about four years. Uh, Like I said, I consider her the top escapee. Um, She's always got amazing stuff to add, and I hate memes. But if I have to look at a meme, I, I prefer it to be one of Sandy's memes. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background, Sandy, and how you got into ancient mysteries, psychedelia, all that kind of stuff. Well, I've always been in – I think it was probably with my aunt who first introduced me to Graham Hancock in 1995, and it was Fingerprints of the Gods. 
And she's always been the woo kind of person in my family. She read tarot, she read tea leaves. Um, and we were watching kind of all the old documentaries that they put together. And we watched the little rover go up the tunnels in the pyramids, but it was very much mainstream TV kind of thing. And the Zawi Nawaz kind of Egypt story that I had. Um, and then I, I went out and I um, went overseas and I traveled a little bit with my brother and I kind of left all of that alone for a long time. I was raving um, in the 90s, so I was doing a little bit of experimentation. Um, I played a little bit with tarot. Um, actually, I had a really interesting tarot. It wasn't a tarot reading. I went for a psychic reading at the College of the Royal College of Psychic Studies in London, and it was the most incredible thing. Um, I tried to do one with tarot, but you know those kind of when you meet someone, they ask you leading questions, and I didn't want to be led. I wanted to know. Tell me what's going on. And. I, she just sat there with me and she meditated and she told me my past, my present, my future. And I had it all on a cassette. And I don't know where the cassette is, having moved so many times. Um, so you're saying this lady was the, accurate in, in determining accurate. Your, your whole oh. life. And you didn't give her any information. No, no information at all. And it's, it's interesting now because we're into my future. And she said to me at the time that you always have, there's always going to be a fork in the road. So what I tell you now might not come to be. And it will be your decision as to which forks you pick, as to whether this will wind up being true for you. And I've obviously followed the right ones because I'm pretty much where I want to be. Yeah, that's sort awesome. Of, yeah, no, I'm open to all that stuff. I know uh, Nora, who's on our Twitter spaces a lot, does tarot. Um I don't know if you follow her on there too, but uh, yeah, I, I, I'm down to try it or at least talk to people about it. I don't, you know me, I'm not like a magic person or anything like that, but uh, I think there is something behind intention and I think there is something behind like these universal archetypes and, you know, I think that humans as, as different as we are, we do kind of all fall into these like little subgroup categories of personalities and characteristics and things like that, so... Um, yeah, I'm open to that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, I left that alone for years and years and years. And then I've listened to kind of Joe Rogan. I don't know when podcasting became a thing or when I even started paying attention to it. But I was mostly on Twitter, as I said to you just now, for politics. I was an angry little beast back in those days. Hmm. Um, and I commented on Anubis's post. Rick commented on that. And he sent me your podcast. And then I just started looking more and more deeply into things. Then 2019 hit, and I was reading up. 2020 hit, and I had time. Little something, something's being gifted to me through my door. YouTube and books, and that's when I really started looking into things a lot more deeply and a lot more spiritually. Because initially I dismissed, for instance, psych all psychedelics, because I'd, I'd done pretty much... Oh, I've done a lot of them when I raved, and I've I'd never had any kind of mind-altering experience. I just had the love and the dancing and the outfits and the everything else. And I just thought to myself, it was also at the time, mental health and psychedelics were hitting the radar, and I thought I I cannot imagine having any trauma healed by by acid. I, I just can't. In fact, I can only think of of further trauma being incurred. 
but yeah, that's kind of my background. I'm not a nerd, and I, every time I jump into these conversations, I always kind of expect people to ask me heavy questions that I just don't have the answer to. I'm kind of, if you think about the Temple of Man, or Twilight de Lewis's Temple of Man, I'm at the feet. Um, and I'm busy working my way toward the head. I don't agree with that. I think you're you're further up the body than that. But I would say this, like, to anybody watching or listening to this, you know, Sandy's a normie and she's not a normie. She's definitely initiated oh, into in, in, she's definitely I hate in, that word. She's definitely initiated into the mysteries, but I can tell she's not prepared to really, you know dive deep into it right now. I, I know you're a little nervous, Sandy, but let's let's loosen you up a little because I, I, I you know, know I, I'm never scared, but I am now. No, that's it's good. It's good to push yourself and, you know, push yourself outside your, your normal boundaries and stuff like that. That's where growth happens. Do you know those little secret messages that you can send on Twitter and ask people what they really think about you and how crazy they think you really am? I'm now telling the internet how crazy I really am. So what do you mean, like DMs? Oh no! There's a little app where you can you can post it to Twitter, and people can send you secret messages about yourself. I didn't know that. What is that? I don't know. I've only ever done it once to tell That's my Twitter crush I absolutely love him. <laughs> I <laughs> the only thing I ever saw that like I saw people posting those sphere of influence things where you can see like who you interact with the most, and it's like a kind of like a Venn diagram of like who you interact with most, kind of. Oh know. yeah. I don't let those kind of apps on my phone because I'm. Yeah. There's so much of my life on here. I, t I'm scared about what the internet remembers about me and what it knows about me, and I'm very, very grateful that the most incredible years of my life are, are absolutely undigital. Well, if the yeah, and that's one thing I think we bond over too is the fact that like, I mean, I grew up. There was like IBM's and early Macs when I was in elementary school. We kind of used the computer, you know, but it wasn't really a big thing till I got to high school. You start to have like computer classes and stuff like that. So we did have this whole, you know, like I try and tell, you know, my younger cousins and family stuff about like when you had to call somebody to say, do you want to go do something? And there was a chance that they might not show up. Because you couldn't confirm that they were there, not there. Sometimes you would miss people and you couldn't find them at places you were supposed to meet up. Because I didn't you know, call people. I used to get on my bike and ride to their house and exactly. knock on their door well, that, and say, let's go. Yeah, that too. That too. But the, the, you could ride a couple of miles to your friend's house and be like, let's hang out. And then, oh, wait, the mom's like, uh, they're not here today, you know, or they already left or went somewhere. So, yeah, we live in a convenient time where we're able to confirm plans and be more accurate and effective with all that kind of stuff which is very interesting but yeah i think there's something romantic about the idea of going back to those simpler times without technology and more of a connection i definitely felt like there was more creative things happening um back then in terms of like you had to be more creative and i feel like interactions with even just your friends and your people around you were used to be a little bit more um, I don't know. It just was a different vibe, you know, so. I make it my vibe. I don't, I don't answer WhatsApp texts. If you want to speak to me, you have to phone me. I will not pick up. I will not respond to any WhatsApps or any questions. My friends all know this about me and I try live my life as non-digitally as I can, but every now and again, it's useful. But I, you know, I, I like the, for instance, I like going into a library and I like finding things and I like looking through things and I like paper and I like the feel 
Um, and I, I mean, but by the same token, I'm, I'm a South African living in the UK. So if I hadn't got technology, it'd be difficult or a lot more difficult than right. it is to, to maintain contact with my family. I mean, when I first lived in the UK with my brother, we moved there in 1999 and we were phoning my mom and dad with a little voucher card from a actual telephone box. Yeah. And we, and we had to pay five pounds to speak to her and we, and we used to write to each other and I've still, I've got those. And I mean, obviously both my parents have died, but it, having those letters, I don't know, they're extremely precious to me. And I don't like looking at what my dad wrote to me or what my mom wrote to me means much more to me than if I'd gone scrolling back through texts that my mom had sent me however many months ago. So it's a double-edged sword, I guess. No, absolutely. Um, oh, but you know what I do want, Mike? There's an Apple iPhone that does LiDAR. Oh, really? Yes. Is it a specific iPhone or is it an app or is it? I think, it, I don't know. I think it's a, I don't know if it's an, if it's the iPhone or one of those apps that you can only have if you have the, the Apple system. Yeah. I mean, I have the newer iPhone. I wonder if I can get it on there. That's interesting. I'll have to look into that. Um, see, you know, a ton of cool stuff. I don't even know about. That's why you're on the show right now. Um, we'll, we'll see. So let's get to the ancient mystery stuff though. So this is what we really bond over. I mean, you and I, we talk about, you know, psychedelics. We talk about metaphysics. We talk about all that stuff, but really. What, the main... what? You told me not to talk about those. Oh yeah. I well, nothing, I know nothing about psychedelics. Sandy nothing doesn't know anything. All. She's very naive about psychedelics. Um, but so the ancient mystery stuff, you mentioned Graham Hancock. Uh, I know you're really into Robert Bavall. You like the Orion correlation stuff. Um, you know, and, and recently we had a little bit of a beef, right, over uh, Yona Gooney. You say yeah. man-made. I say natural structure. Um, now, we'll get into that in a minute, but I'm just saying, like, things like that is kind of where we go back and forth. What do you think, though, is the greatest mystery when it comes to the ancient mysteries? Because you've read a lot on the topic. You've seen a lot of the guests that we've had on the topic. You've sent me a lot of messages. So, like, what's your what's your favorite, number one? And then number two, what do you think is the greatest, like, mystery? Oh. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We stumped Such her. a difficult question for me to answer. It, it is. It is Egypt. So, kind of, Egypt's your favorite, or Egypt's the biggest mystery? The, the procession of the equinoxes is actually my biggest mystery. Okay, that's a good one. And what was all happening concurrently at that time, which all ties into Yonagoni, because there was some great event that happened 
and it happened in India and it happened in Japan and it happened over the Sphinx, which obviously Shah has discussed. And what was my mystery is what was the civilization that came before Egypt and before Gebekli Tepe? Because we didn't, like Graham Hancock said, just arrive as hunter-gatherers and say, let's put up this massive temple. Um, then little things creep in, like Naptaplaya, which is almost the blueprint. It's In fact, it's the exact blueprint of what we know today on the, on the Giza pyramid. So what was happening on that timeline within those 72 degrees? Yeah, you. So you mentioned well, pretty much everybody has recorded in right. in the same the same myth with different iconography and slightly different variations. So anybody who doesn't know what Napta Playa is, it's in the Sudan. It's not far from Egypt, and they think it's like the precursor, like the Stonehenge version of uh, you know Egypt Stonehenge that kind of led to the idea of these astronomical alignments with the pyramids and things like that. So. Point point for point, it lines up with Orion in exactly the same way as the three pyramids do. Yeah, and it's no. it's it's not. Um, I mean. I do like Baval because his Black Genesis goes into this quite, quite deeply, um, and it would make it would make sense. Um, but I mean, do, do you believe in the Orion core? Like, meaning, so do you believe the three pyramids of Giza line up with Orion's belt? Like, do you think that that's what was happening? And if so, so do you think then the pyramids were built around ten thousand five hundred years ago? Because I think that's when it went up and aligned uh well it was either then or john anthony west said it could be when was the previous um time that it would this thing sort of been aligned 36,000 years so 36,000 so that's push that's that's pretty aggressive right i mean that's an aggressive timeline 36,000 years ago for the sphinx i mean that's crazy but it's possible because we're going to talk about Yonaguni just now. Do you know what I mostly want? Because my name is Sandy for a reason. Because I, if I could scuba dive through the sand, that's what I would be doing. Because hmm. we can find things um, when the sea levels drop. It's like with the drought that's going on now, they're finding all different kinds of cities um, and wrecks that they haven't seen in years and years along coastlines and along riverbeds and things like that. Yeah, there's been a lot by like where the Indus Valley civilizations are. I've noticed like in the Middle East, they've had these like dried, like you're mentioning, like dried up riverbanks and riverbeds that have like these civilizations and these buildings and stuff like that. And actually, to your point, though, um, they found they found some stuff, too, I think, along the coast of Australia, too, if I'm not mistaken. And you had that land bridge that connected the corner of Australia to the tip of Indonesia at the end of the last ice age, which they would call that Sundaland. So. So we can die, but I mean, what is under the Sahara? We don't know. Because you've got a whole Nubian. I mean, we don't, I'm quite into the African stuff because we talk a lot about Egypt and we talk a lot about India and we. And you're from Africa, I, so. Yes. Yes, I'm from Africa. I'm, in fact, I was brought up about 10 minutes away from, from the Stokefontein Caves where Lee Berger, Professor Lee Berger, is busy with uh, where they discovered Mrs. Pless and 
the cradle, they call it the cradle of, of humankind. So did we start in a cave somewhere like that? Grow into human beings from writing and scrawling our art. What's walls. that? What's and the other guy's name? David Lewis Williams? Is that David, the David Lewis Williams. Yeah, he's yeah, written right. some amazing books. Uh, Mind in the Cave was one that I read. Um, and there's another one. It's the it's God's Consciousness or the Consciousness of God. And I love those two books because, in essence, when I, uh, you know, sometimes I quote Carl Jung. Yeah. It's not that I've read him, it's just that it, something that he said makes sense. And it's. I just like his quotes. Can, <laughs> I'm such an information magpie because I haven't been sitting and studying this stuff for years and years. So when I see something, I go and investigate it. That's awesome. That's um, how it should be. But he wrote that what the mind struggles to understand, the hands can often solve. And I think about the drawings that we've made. And I think about the times that I have spoken to a friend of mine who said that they were on psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> um and what we can actually, it's the art, basically, is what I'm trying to say, is that we have been recording history from the cave to Egypt, and then along that timeline, uh, going back to what my favorite mystery is, is what was going on at the procession of the equinox, where we are sitting with Egypt, or we are sitting with Easter Island statues with their little hands like this, and Gebekli statues with their hands like this, um, mammoths at Diwanaku, and I hands might have like this. A, uh, I might have a picture. Let's see if I can find one. Um, yeah, you're right, though. The hands around the navel area. Um, and how did, how did these people... So... It's so difficult for me to exp to explain rationally, and I'm also I'm nervous, so I'm stuttering. <laughs> You're fine. Um, Don't worry about <laughs> it. Is all these people were placed so far apart? So was there some kind of group think that made them create the same structures and this very similar icon um, iconography? Or how were they traveling around? Were they traveling around with their handbags? Their their you know, let's plant some ergot quickly and have a quick settlement and build this. I, I don't know. I mean, that for me is a mystery. Absolutely. But I say Egypt because that is kind of the culmination and because of its measurements and because of Zeb Tepe. If anybody and, doesn't know what Zeb Tepe means, it means the first time in uh, Egyptian. So it just seems, um, I think that for me is, I don't think you can have one biggest mystery, but that would be the most broadest way of describing what mine is and, and why it comes, why it comes to Egypt. Yeah, you know, and it, there must be something about that because Solon was there. I mean, all the, all these, they went to Egypt. The Egyptians didn't go and study from anywhere else. Everyone, everyone else went to Egypt. Yeah. No, I mean, they definitely uh, traded with people, but you're right. I think, you know, a, a lot of the ancient Greeks went to Egypt. Thales, 
you know, you mentioned Solon. Cole, Cole, long, long time coming yeah. for this one. Yeah. Cole. We were just talking about Hello, Cole off air. Um, but yeah, the, the Egyptian thing's interesting. So for me, uh, what drew me in was like the mystery aspects of it. Like how did they build these, you know, the pyramids and some of these structures with these megalithic blocks? Um, you know, what was their spirituality and uh, knowledge of consciousness like? What was their knowledge of the afterlife like? Um, you know, I, I was very into the Book of the Dead. I mean, I guess I still am. Uh, but for me, it was like I had the woo first, and I wanted to read and learn all the academic stuff, which I also did. Um, and if anybody's interested, you can send me a message, and I'll refer you to some some what I think are credible academic takes that don't aren't really dogmatic. Um, but... Um, yeah, I think that there's definitely something to, um, the mystery because I, even though like, for instance, even if you look at all the academic stuff, the archeological record, the timeline stuff, everything, um, one thing that archeologists are not great at is diving into and understanding the spiritual aspects or the pantheon of gods. Like they just write it off as some sort of woo nonsense, almost like, what a modern day person would be talking about when they talk about religion or UFOs or whatever. So um, there's that element of it for sure, where um, I think that that's not discussed enough and it's just written off as like woo or nonsense. But I think that's where the most stuff is because this is what they're saying. They're saying that, you know, we did all this because of these gods or we did all this because of these entities. So what are those entities? And, and, and for archaeologists just to look at the physical stuff and not look at like, the inspiration for why these things were happening. I think that's a big fail in my opinion. It's absolutely a big fail. Um, if you do go back to mind in the cave and if you do consider that they were doing rituals or experiencing and recording events of their own consciousness or events of their own life, I, you know, when, if, even if you look at the stoned ape theory, if one day an ape is walking along and he picks up a mushroom and he has an experience and then he learns how to record the experience, once you've learned how to do with some one thing with your hand, then in my experience, I want to see what else can I do? What is the next thing that I can build? What is the next marking that I can make? And why am I doing this? Like what, what in my brain is prompting me to do all this? Um, so I think some of it was to record the fact that they were becoming conscious and some of it was to say, hey, um, you know, I was here or we were here and this is what we were doing. I, and I would like to explore more into why, because you mm -hmm. don't just, the, the alignment of the pyramids for one thing is astronomical, but what then about all the hieroglyphics. What, what do they mean? When did they discover that the there was such a thing as an afterlife? The first hieroglyphics show up around 3200 BC. So technically, I mean, um, you know, cuneiform or Sumerian, Akkadian writing and all that was before, but I always mention that like with ancient Egypt, and we talk about Thoth, the scribe god and the trickster god. Language was a technology. Writing and symbolism was a technology. Uh, but it still kind of technically is. But 
back then it really was the the ability to convey a very specific nuanced thing through a symbol had to have been groundbreaking right yeah but i I do not think that hieroglyphs are just the continuity of of petroglyphs and the more sophisticated their ability to record and write things um yeah, I would say there's some sort of causal line there. I mean, there's definitely, you know, as somebody that does like art and music and stuff, you're always going to get some sort of infor, uh, inspiration from previous stuff. So you're right. I mean, I think there probably is some sort of connection to the petroglyphs. Did they see petroglyphs, try and interpret them and then update them? Uh, did they, you know, I don't know. That's that's a good question. I mean, what do you think about all that? <sighs> I don't, I, I don't, I honestly, I don't know. I think this is part of the, <sighs> well, let me rephrase that. Do you think, have you, you know, we did that episode on Easter Island. I think you've seen it. There's that work of Dr. Anthony Parat from Los Alamos labs where he does the plasma stuff. And then Robert Schock used that research uh, for his book, um, what's the name of his book that he forgotten civilization, um, and his the hypothesis was that maybe these petroglyphs because they were able to come up with these these repeatable tests that show these figures that look like the figures that are on the petroglyphs, but this is just plasma discharge that they're recording. So that's then Robert Schock takes that and says, oh, you know, and and Parat for that matter say this is the the source of these petroglyphs and i think shock takes it even further and starts talking about like the animal-headed gods and that's what it might have looked like in the sky from the plasma or things like that so i don't know what do you think about that kind of stuff i'm not i'm not i don't really have an opinion on that i mean that's i i've never even read that uh well i'm gonna send you some stuff sandy because oh send me some stuff send me some stuff um but yeah, I don't know. I, I really like ancient Egypt. I know you do too. Have Have you been to Egypt? I forgot. Have you been to Egypt? Yes, I have. And what did you think when you went there? Like, what did you were you in awe? Did it change? Like, did you have a preconceived notion going in, and did it change after you've been there? Or? Yeah, I mean, Egypt was nothing like I expected. Uh, I went there the first time. And we landed in Cairo, and I've never seen such a city in all my life. It, the do- it was dawn, the sun was coming up, and it's just smug and filthiness and high rises with satellite dishes on every single corner you can think of, and stakes sticking up the top of the buildings because if they finish, they've got to pay tax on them if they finish them. And we drove to our hotel and we got all freshened up and then they said, oh, okay, we're right, we're off to go to the pyramids. And I was expecting this huge long drive in the Nat Geo desert camel thing. And we were just driving through slums and there were water buffalo and all of a sudden there was a little triangle. And I thought, what, <laughs> what? And you, you, don't, you don't think that the pyramids are gonna look like that. And they are also, I mean, they're big, but they aren't as big as I thought that they would be. It's the very first thing that I thought of because we went inside and we were crawling along tunnels and I was, it was wonderful. And I, at the time, this was long before I'd gone into any of the more complicated stuff that I'm trying to get into now. I just was, it was also exceedingly hot and I, and I get claustrophobic oh, and I cannot sure. begin to tell you how hot it is inside. Were, there. 
Were you in, are you talking about like the crawling through the grand gallery or something like in the main uh, yeah Great so Pyramid? the little tunnels that you've got to get into the big atrium where the sarcophagus is right it's just the sarcophagus and I walked out and I thought wow I mean this they must I was just thinking they must have been really small yeah how, I was gonna say of... what about the sarcoph when you saw the sarcophagus did it seem like like a regular sized person would fit in there or did it seem like really big or really small? Like what was your first perception of it? It just looked like what it, it just looked like a very sturdy granite coffin kind of a box to me. So that was, I mean, it was just an experience being inside there and they did a little bit of the acoustics for us. The How was that? Did major... you like meditate or make any sort of frequency things happen? Yeah, there? so that you can hear the the sound flowing between the chambers that ordinarily you shouldn't hear moving between the walls. Right. Then we left, and you've always been at that time. You've been told that the that the pyramids are tombs, and I thought, okay, fine. This is a very big tomb, and. Uh, it's quite crazy, and the sarcophagus was there, and they drove us to the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. And the first thing I saw, the first exhibition was just massive alabaster boxes. I mean, mics bigger than the size of my entire living room, just solidly carved out, and other artifacts that had been inside the supposed tomb. And I thought, how the fuck do you get that inside? Hmm. That tiny little tunnel, it is not possible that that could have been a tomb because they would have had to stop building the pyramid halfway through and the pharaoh would have had to have decided then what he wanted to put inside and then carry on building over over and above that. And I thought this is – it was mind-bending. Yeah, so uh... – and if anybody's interested, if you're trying to picture what she's talking about, we did an episode, I think it was Mysteries and Metaphysics uh, 4.5, where we did a slideshow and we go through the Great Pyramid and all the different chambers and we have diagrams and stuff like that. So if you're curious and you want to know kind of and get a visual of what she's talking about, you can go check that out. Um, but... At the time, I was just appreciating the scale and the absolute enormity of, you know, the statues and the intricacy of the brickwork at Abydos or, you know, wandering around. There's a, when you travel and you go to these places, there is as much to me a sense of wonder at the architecture that I'm seeing, but also the significance in the air. There's some kind of aura and you just feel magic and you feel like there's something that you are in touch with, but you it's an itch that you can't quite scratch. And I were you allowed like to? Were you allowed to like? Because I know they don't allow you to climb to the top now, but they used to. I know Graham Hancock talks about climbing to the top, and then feeling like some sort of like static electric charge once he got up there. Uh, were you able to do that, or is this after that? No, I've never climbed to the top of the pyramid. If I could, I would. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder when I mean, they stopped that. I'd like to go back now. Now that I've, I I would like to go back to Karnak now, and I would like to look at the Temple of Man, and I would like to know. I mean, that's another thing that that's a mystery to me is 
the detail. Uh, have you watched Magical Egypt? Yeah. Okay. I've seen season um, one and two, I think. Yeah, I saw season one and two, and then after that, it just it 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 got a little bit too technical for me, so I I abandoned it. I have to say. But I was. What is the message? First prophecy, right, is one of the things that I like to is one of the things that I like to listen to, and I sometimes I think to myself that he might have, you know, he he foresaw the burning of the Library of Alexandria, and he saw the floods, and he saw all the kinds of damages and carnage that human beings were going to do to structures and to ourselves. And that I think I'm, I'm, I mentioned in a thread somewhere that the message is that we all need to know are probably didactically sitting in some form of art, either in the hieroglyphs, but in actual architectural form. Like, like I said to you, I'm starting at the, at the feet of the temple of man, and then it goes through the brain in such massive detail and I wonder why there because it's not that they didn't build other monuments and it's not that other things of such significance were going we're not going on elsewhere why has that specifically been been marked the way that it is in in much more detail than anywhere else no I mean it's uh it's definitely something very interesting and if anybody's interested in what she's talking about check out uh, Temple of Man by Schwaller de Lubitz. Uh, John Anthony West talks about him a lot. Uh, we've had Laird Scranton on a bunch where he talks about him a lot. Um, it's definitely from from like a symbolism standpoint, it's very interesting. Um, and I, I just I wonder too, like um, when you were there, uh, when you when you like left or whatever, and you, you walked away and had time to think about your your trip there and everything. Did you feel like there was more mystery surrounding it, less mystery surrounding it? Were you just kind of like indifferent or like what was your, your vibe after? Much more mystery. Much more mystery? Much more mystery. But I just, you know, you know, when you get into these modes and you just think, oh, you know, I need to read everything and I have to get to the bottom of this and I've got to read through every book in sight to try and find an answer. And then you get a little bit demoralized and the rabbit hole becomes just extreme and you just find yourself absolutely lost and you think, I'm never going to find the answer. And, you know, now in the age of the internet, all these weirdos come creeping in with their theories <laughs> as well. I just think, fuck, I actually cannot even deal with this. And I get bored of it all and I put it aside and I go and do something else. Um, so did you go to Aswan when you were there too to check out the unfinished obelisk? Yeah. Um, Let me see if I can pull that up. So one I mean, of the that, big, that's, one of the, one that's, of the, that's that might be a little bit of a clue because they moved. Are we symbol for that? So my question is though, because don't they show you those little like uh, dolerite pounding stones that are like balls to like that's what they supposedly use to hit? See those like scoop mark things on the top. Yeah. Supposedly that's where they were pounding down on. I mean, so like from like a building technique standpoint, do you think that those those hand pounders, those round dolor, uh, dolorite uh, stones were used to pound it out? Or do you think they were like softening it somehow? Or like, what do you think in terms of like, because doesn't that look weird? It does look like it's been like scooped or I don't know. 
that does look kind of, that does kind of look scooped. I mean, this is why I tell you that I'd have to go back and look at it again with fresh eyes, knowing more than I know now. Because I, I, when I went there, I wasn't looking for nubs or how things slotted in together. I was literally, I think you, the first time you go to Egypt, you are just, you are so bowled over by everything you see. It's difficult to process. Yeah. Um, but if anybody's interested, I mean, we, she mentioned nubs. These nubs are like, they're called... Uh, moving bosses or there's different you know it's basically academics say they were used to move things if you're interested in alternative theories go check out uh ancient history criticisms on uh, twitter because he's got kind of small alternative takes on that whole thing um but yeah i mean in terms of I don't know. I, I look at that and like a part of me thinks like, OK, you know, they must have found some way. But then there's like grooves on the side of the, the um, here. Let me see if I can pull up another picture. Um, oh, it, was, it was interesting because when oh, I was watching something the other day, I was with Chris Dunn. Uh, and someone asked him what what drill speed they would have to have been using to uh, carve the this, that sarcophagus inside the major atrium of the Great Pyramid, and it was m a, a higher rotation than we than we've got now. Um, so I don't I don't know. I mean, I can only think of sound or some kind of senses that they must have had that we have outbred as humans. I don't I don't know, but the. That almost looks like dunes on the previous picture that you'd put through. Yeah, here, let me pull that back up. Yeah, so, um, I mean, again, the, the mainstream archaeological um, record says that they used copper tools with a slight a bit of arsenic in it to make it a little bit harder, which is kind of laughable because uh, copper is pretty soft even with arsenic in it. I, I can't imagine it doing any real damage to granite but again the granite was supposedly pounded out by these dolerite pounding stones these like circular they almost look like big softballs made out of dolerite um, and they have they have them still there so people can like hit them against the stone and see for themselves but supposedly people have tested this um, and it takes a long time just like the whole theory about coring I don't know if you've seen the coring stuff Sandy where they've got like the copper hollowed out almost looks like a copper pipe and they use it to like grind back and forth with sand under it to to, to do the drilling technique that you're talking about that would take yeah, forever just, too it just couldn't have happened. yeah I, just, I, I, so I don't, I don't know i mean these things would either take forever to do or they had some sort of other technique that we're just not aware of and again i i always bring this up but they didn't have distractions like we have now. Like they knew how to use things around them, the resources, the earth. They were in tune with the earth, and we are so far removed from that. So it's 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 even from a consciousness standpoint, we it's it's it's. I don't even think it's as much as like a technique thing as much as it's hard to fathom what their consciousness was like to to be able to do something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um. But yeah, I just, I look at that, the, you know, there's different, you know, uh, mysteries. So we're talking about the, the unfinished obelisk that's 
So they abandoned it. As you can see there, the crack along the top. That's why it was abandoned. Similar um, to, it reminds me of the unfinished Moai on Easter Island, that huge Moai that was just massive, um, that they couldn't get out of the, the, the volcanic tough quarry. Um, but yeah, so there, there's that. Let's get to the Sphinx, though, because I do want to pull up... What did you think about the Sphinx when you were there in terms of, like, because I know we were just talking about it being older, but, like, what did you feel when you were around it? Again, just... Just... Two things. All... And the fact that I could see the whole of Cairo behind me. Or in... Well, in front in, in front of me. Uh... I mean, at the, the first time I went there, I just wanted to see it because I, I was with my aunt and I, um, you know, we'd, I know you want a sciencey answer and I'd probably give you a better one if I'd, if I'd just recently been, but I think the last, I was there 10 years ago. I, I'm talking about maybe? like straight up like intuition. I don't, it doesn't have to be sciencey. I'm looking for more of just your personal like uh, vibe or feeling that you got from It's just that. how, how could they have done this? Because... Nothing, even though I've read about it now, nothing makes sense. There isn't a tool that makes sense. There isn't. And what was the what was the motive? I think for me, with all of these things, I I know that you're you're into the building and what tools did they use, but what was the motive that made them devise all these things to build such a thing? Um, obviously. I thought that the head is a that the head is a lot smaller. Um, yeah, I mean, look. So, I, I so when say. we started the podcast, I definitely was into the building techniques and how did they do it. But slowly over the years, I've become less interested in it. Not that it still doesn't fascinate me. If I see something on it or a cool video on it or somebody has a new theory or something, I definitely check it out. But for me, it's been more about looking into the consciousness and like their understanding of um, the the mind and what they were able to do, what they weren't able to do, uh, the inspiration behind what they were doing. Like these are the things that are more fascinating to me than the actual schematics of how this was done or that was done. So, yeah, I mean, I'm now the thing that interests me the most, and I'd never really thought about it before, was the fact that the Sphinx's face is most definitely Zulu-like. Um, so that would definitely feed into the fact that they, that it could, it, that that's a sub-Saharan African face. So you think, so that's why it ties back to what you're saying, it being like way older um, in that region. And so if people no, don't... I don't think that that's way older because they knew. So do you think the, the, the Sphinx is, is correctly dated then to the time of Khufu? Um, no, I think that the Sphinx is co correctly dated by Robert Shuck. Um, I think it probably, it, it, no, it has to, I think that the Sphinx has got to be much older than even 12,500 years ago because it had to have already been there to get rained on to have the water erosion. So have you seen, there's there's a few different theories too as to what you're talking about. Um, and I'm sure you've heard some of these, but one of them is there could have been natural flooding at some point on the plateau that would have caused that 
So, and when you look around the base of the Sphinx there, all of those stones that were quarried away were used to build what's known as the Sphinx Temple. So those stones were used to build the Sphinx Temple. And then, so that would have had to have been quarried and then the, the erosion would have had to happen after that, right? Yes. But if, uh, so it's going to have to be a, a, a period of extended rain. It can't be flooding because they Shuck did something where the rising tide would cause a different kind of ripple effect. It has to have been something raining down from the top because the, the rivulets are coming down fr- from its back to its feet. And I would it's agree not... with that. That's that is what it looks like. It does look like rain running down the edges and then pooling at the bottom there. My question to you be have you heard the theory though that the guy posits a different geologist who says that there's these things that are like um salt little salt pockets um or deposits and that the moisture or the dew gets into those salt deposits and that that's what breaks away over time. Um, he didn't, I don't think it was, it was less about like the dating of it and just more of like an actual explanation of how that could have happened. No, I I haven't, I haven't heard about that. Um, Um, but going back to Kufre, I mean, I think, I think we have to go now that we know what we do about say, go back to we have to think about what was the Sphinx initially and it could have been Khufu. Um, or Kaf- is it Kafre, rather? Ka- yeah, Kafre is uh, the son. renovated it. But even yeah. when he renovated it, he why did he not do it in his own image? Why did he use a sub-Saharan African face? Not his yeah. own. I mean, like, so you're you're talking about like so like John Anthony West uh, would always bring up this idea that the Sphinx, if you look at the proportions, like the ancient Egyptians were master. Uh, architects, builders, artists, you look at their statues, they're very, very well made. Um, and he's saying that they're they're amazing builders, so why would they build something that's not proportional? So you like you see the body there and that the body and the feet um, are way bigger in proportion to what the head would be. So there's different right. theories. There's a theory um, that maybe at one time it was a lion. That's one of Graham Hancock's theories that it was a lion and during uh, the last um, alignment, which would have been, it would have been aligned up like with same thing. I think with the, the when it aligned with Orion's belt like 10,500 years ago, uh, the Sphinx would have been facing like, this constellation of Leo or something along those lines. I don't know. Well, can I ask you to hold that thought? I yeah. just have to go and take the bone out of Simon's mouth because it's driving me mad. <laughs> That's fine. I've Sorry. Got She's got to tend to her little uh, French bulldog uh, who's a little cutie named Simon. Uh, but so, you know, in terms of what we're talking about, um, we're talking about, we were, we were mentioning earlier the three pyramids. Sorry, he's of- driving me absolutely nuts. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about how the three pyramids of Giza align with Orion's belt um, and during that same time period, like 10,500 years ago, which they projected Graham Hancock and Baval, that um, at that same time, if it was a lion's head or a lion's face, it would have been facing the constellation of Leo. So, I mean, that's kind of an interesting connection. And then there's some other people that think it could have been a jackal head, which would make sense too, um, overseeing. Um, then, know, then what would it want? Then what would it's. A constellation 
What jackal constellation is there? Well, there wouldn't be a constellation, but the jackal is a, is a symbol. Like, I mean, if you look like jackals go around and eat bodies from like graves and stuff like that too. So you're you're talking we're talking about a a funerary complex. So it would have been protecting maybe the dead bodies from like a symbolist standpoint. Oh, but is it really a funerary complex? Well, or? that's what. The, but that's the, I'm just giving you the the. Uh, one of the other theories. That's not necessarily what I believe, but I'm just putting all, all the stuff out there. No, I mean, I think, I, I think that it was, I think it was a natural rock formation that they decided to make, I don't know what it became or what it was, or why it could have become a lion but it's just its place so the people that made the people that were in that area wouldn't have just randomly carved a lion that somehow miraculously wound up one day to be in an equinox faced to leo on the Gizan pyramids there, there must have been something behind that and well, i think the way what about the I idea think, though that... i always look at what came before like what yeah. precipitated the before, if yeah, that makes sense. Well, that's what that's what I was going to ask you because, like, some people speculate that maybe there was older structures that the pyramids were built on, or like these altar type structures, or you know, pre-pyramidal structures, or like there was something there maybe before. And actually, that's not uncommon. You see that uh, in ancient Greece too. There's a lot of temples that are built on top of temples that are built on top of temples because they're symbolic in their um, their location. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean that 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 goes for for everything. I just um Mike, I don't know. I mean these are this is when when I tell you sometimes that I look into this and I think about it and I just get frustrated because I think we'll never know. Um it's not like for example, I mean there is a lot of sand there, so we don't know what is underneath the sand. We, there's another problem that the Egyptian antiquities people don't want you to know what's underneath the sand. Um, and it's, it, in contrast, if you go to Rome or if you go to Naples, everywhere you go is literally a construction site and they have to stop because they carry on finding some antiquity or some Roman, an, another set of mosaics or another set of pots. So we don't even know what Cairo is built on. Or, I mean, so the city itself could be hiding something. Who knows what's underneath that sand? Um, and I, I think we're just going to have, for, you know how we had the Younger Dryas floods? We are going to need serious wind floods to clear the desert and the surrounding areas to say, right, what is it exactly that came, that came through here? What was it like when it was a green savanna? Um, and... It's no, so so to your point though too, um, talking about like how things have been buried and you know throughout time. So a little bit of background just on the Sphinx uh, from that thing. The picture I just pulled up is of what's called the Dream Steel, um, and it tells the story of Tutmosis falling asleep against the Sphinx um, and having a dream that if he could clear off all the sand and uncover the Sphinx, that he would then become Pharaoh. Um, which actually did come to fruition, and which was kind of interesting from the standpoint he wasn't the next in line uh, successor either. So some other things had to kind of play out for him to take uh, take that position. But yeah, I mean, 
that's the that's called the dream steel right there you can look up the translation yeah. it's an interesting story if nobody's ever looked into it but yeah the sphinx has been buried and cleared off and buried and cleared off like a ton of times and then oh that was another thing about one of the it was on that stela where they assumed that the sphinx was 5000 years ago because the um the cut off hieroglyphic said C-H-U, and nothing further. So they just assumed, right, well, this is Khufu or Khafre, and they never bothered to investigate any further. Right. The so there's thing. that. There's, there's, they've done, um, they've done acoustic, um, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, sensors on it, and they found that there are, like, little chambers and pockets underneath the Sphinx. Oh. And actually, I think it was that Edgar Casey even, one of his readings says that, uh, the Hall of Records is found underneath one of the paws of the Sphinx. Uh, so, I mean, this is an idea that goes back quite a ways and even before that. So, Oh, yeah. Do you know what? You know, Mike, my, my memory is like an absolute sieve. Uh, but I do, I do remember, um, who's Dr. Gregory? Dr. Gregory, the Path yeah. of Souls. Dr. Why? Gregory Little, yep. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, he's done some great chats about uh, Edgar Casey and and what was there. But it's not just. I don't think it's just a hall of records. There's an entire cave system um, that Andy Collins has spoken about as well. Collins's cave. And, yeah, Collins's cave, which is now concreted up by 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 Zawi, and no one else is allowed in there. So if anybody's interested, um, I think what was the first time we was at the I think it was the first time we had Andrew Collins on. He did talk about what you're talking about, which is he found yeah. this cave system underneath the Giza Plateau where um, they think that there's probably a lot of other stuff down there. So, uh, I mean, there's an extraordinary amount of stuff that's that's there. Um, but the cave system is there, the stele is there, why are, why are the pyramids there, what were they, what were they for, were they for energy? Um, you know, one of my biggest questions also is, what are those prime numbers at the end of the tunnel and why won't any, why can't we go further than that? What do they align to? Hmm. I mean, yeah. are, they, are they coordinates? Are they prime numbers? Um, are they no no one actually knows sorry stop it <laughs> it's a nightmare honestly i should have just had a baby simon making things happen for us um <laughs> so let's shelf the egypt thing we're going to have you back on in the future and next time you're going to be less nervous and we're going to go even deeper next time but i do want to move on to yonaguni because this is something that that you know, but there I is be... something about Egypt that I have to tell you, and, and another yeah. place, no, no, a reason us. that it's one of my favorite places. It's not just because of Egypt itself. It's um, another one of Robert Baval's books. It's called The Vatican Heresy. Um, and another of Graham and Graham Hancock and Robert Baval's books, which is The Talisman. And why are so many cities doing their best to bring forward the Egyptian, well, I call it the Egyptian continuity hypothesis in the same way as though you get the pagan continuity hypothesis. There is something about Egypt that Paris wants to emulate, that Rome wants to emulate, 
the Florence wants to emulate that they haven't done with any other civilization. There are no emulations of the Acropolis anywhere else. There is something pivotal to Egypt that makes every other city threaded through into its culture. No, I, I like that theory, and it's true. I and, mean, and that's that's why actually, when I was busy contemplating my navel through the beginning of lockdown, that was when I discovered uh, I, uh, Robert Pavel's Vatican Heresy, and that is why I chose Rome, Paris, and Florence because I wanted to understand why, uh, and I wanted to see for myself: is this what it, what had gone on in those cities and it is it's it, it, um i mean paris they say is is actually named after isis i think there are two hieroglyphs it, it says par isis um they say that the you know, notre dame cathedral is built on the temple of isis um and she's also the healing god so did you know the Tommy, real name for isis is east like IST, but and yeah. actually all the female Egyptian gods end with a T, except for the word Isis, but it's the Greek translation of East. I didn't know that. Yeah, you learn something new I every day, Sandy. I learn something every time I speak to you, Mike. You always make me feel like an idiot. No, no, no. I learned no, I stuff from you, so I learned something from everybody. <laughs> I, and th that's not a joke. I, I honestly try and learn something from anybody, even if it's like wow, that person that I'm listening to right now is off their rocker. I learned not what, what not to do, you know, or whatever. So, like, there's always something associated with I think there really is something to learning something from everybody. I'm not just saying that. Okay. That's but I learned a lot from you, not just a little. So. Okay. I'm going to ask you to list three things. <laughs> you, don't, you don't sound too convinced. I, I know it is very difficult for me. I, I get... Because I've had to try and condense so much of what you're, I mean, you've been studying this for years. I've been looking at it really hard for about a year during lockdown and then in between my normal life and the little, in little pockets now and again. So I don't know everything about everything. I just look into things that are relevant to me and my journey in life and things that have bothered me. Um, talking about religion and and consciousness i mean as <sighs> egypt interests me because it is that my religion or is catholicism my religion or is and love your religion rome, and when i went to rome it turns out that egyptian is my religion yeah, so why don't you talk a little bit about, before we move on to Yonaguni, why don't you talk a little bit about your trip to Rome and the Vatican? Oh, uh, this was probably the first trip that I've done after having read little bits and bobs, but it was basically, uh, I'd read this Vatican Heresy by Robert Vall. And I had had quite an encounter with some Sylvia entities. And I knew that 
I needed to go and find out what religion was all about. Um, I think what was my own mortality about, because well, I said to you that I would mention COVID, everyone was sitting <laughs> and discussing their, their mortality and how I couldn't travel. Um, but yeah, so I chose, obviously, firstly, I was having a, a bit of a depressive episode, so I chose Paris because of the ISIS connection. Um, and I chose Rome because I wanted to go and see the Heliopolis and I wanted to go and see the City of God, um, which Robert Baval said was done specifically by the Renaissance artists to bring about, well, to restore, you know, in Thoth's prophecy, and he goes, everything is going to be doomed. One day we will rebuild um, a city in the in the in the image of the Egyptian gods, so that people will never forget it. It will always be a constant reminder, um, even if you're even if you're not aware of it. So many people will be going through Rome every day, and they'll be looking at the Colosseum, and they'll be going, "Oh wow, look at the Palatine," but they'll never realize the eccentricity about Rome and exactly, you know, why the pyramids are placed here or why Bernini's fountain is there. And it's just one of those things, you know, when you read a book and it seems interesting, but you go out and you see it and and in person it's it's quite something um and i also wanted to address that as part of my faith because i've been an atheist for many many years but going back to those little salvia dudes they you know when you say when people say that they've seen the other side of the veil i knew that i knew that religion wasn't a white man in a cloud i think it might be entities on the other side of a veil so kind of i don't know if this is making sense but that that was essentially uh no i mean I, finding... I, you know where i stand with all that stuff in terms of you know i, d I definitely don't think it's a bearded zeus looking archetype sitting on a cloud pulling strings or anything like that i think if anything it's like what you mentioned some sort of metaphysical or in interdimensional entities or some sort of like connective fractal um, energy that binds us all together, uh, something along those lines. But yeah, I mean, I would agree with you um, from that standpoint. Oh, I, wrote it, I wrote it down here so that I would not forget. Um, and now I can't find it because I've got so much paper. <laughs> Mike, man! Um, it looks like you're, reading, you're writing a uh, novel with all that. Well... You know, you know that I, you know that I've got MS, right? So my my brain fog is completely through the roof. I can barely remember what I read yesterday or what I did this morning. So I've got to write down quite a lot of stuff um, in order to remember it. But uh, I think I wanted to see how the not just the the Renaissance people or that the Hermeticists had built the Heliopolises, an image of a, Heliopo a Heliopolis, but how the Catholic Church had acknowledged that and if there had been any acknowledgement. And you can kind of see that while you're busy wandering through the Vatican and you see the Fontana with its pine cone and its peacock and you and it's just little bits and bobs. It went, I think when you've read a book that, uh, you know that I like didactic stuff and that I like symbols um and oh, it just makes much more sense when you go there it's, i i'd like i'd like to take you on a tour and and talk you through this yeah i mean but, 
I'm that actually, I mean, I keep telling Amanda, um, the first place I want to go when we leave the country next would be Italy and Greece, uh, for sure. I mean, I'd like to go see where I'm from in Italy and I'd like to go to Greece because, um, you know, Pythagoras, when he was running that ascetic cult, um, it was actually in Italy in Crotone, uh, which is where yeah. mod- modern day Calabria is. And that's actually where my family's from. So I think that that would be fascinating to go check that out. Um, as well as, you know, the Greek islands and the Cyclades and stuff like that. So, But in any event, I mean, oh, everyone's going to wonder how did I wind up in the Vatican in my underwear? <laughs> and that is because, <laughs> and that is because I'd spent four days uh, doing the Vatican Heresy tour, but also I loved Dan Brown and I'd read Angels of Demons, so I wanted to do the the two because I can't be a full time nerd because I like fantasy novels like Dan Brown's too. But it was 37 degrees and I was absolutely exhausted and I'd gone around the Vatican the day before um, and I'd missed the opening time for St. Peter's Basilica and it was about six o'clock and I arrived there and the guy said, we're, we're going to close. Um, and I said, no, and you don't have a shawl on and you don't have time to get one. And I said, I've come all this way to understand God and to meet God. And I was wearing a dress and cycling pants underneath that because it, it was hot and mm. there was a bit of chafe going on. And in front of this guy with a, he had an automatic <laughs> rifle on it. I just <laughs> thought, I don't know what the fuck I'm gonna do to make a shawl now. And I thought, I know what I'm gonna do. And I looked at him and I pulled up the sides of my dress and I took my cycling pants off and this guy was just looking at me. I, I've never seen anyone look at me like this before. <laughs> and I put them over my shoes and I put my arm on either side of these cycling pants and I put them over my shoulder and I said, my shoulders are covered. Can I go inside now? <laughs> and he just looked at me and I just walked through and, and nothing ever happened to me after that. But yeah, that is, that is how I wound up meeting God in my underwear. <laughs> that's funny uh yeah i mean in terms of uh you mentioned uh you know this whole like tour thing so do they have is that when you say dan brown tour or the heresies tour is this like you just knowing these spots from these books or is there actual like tour things happening like specific oh, yeah like... there are hundreds of tours that you can take i mean oh angels really and demons and ones Oh, they do have um, like the, I I didn't know that they had like different packages or different people taking people through different types of. Oh, there there are many. I mean, but when I went, there was literally nothing running. There was COVID inside the Vatican and inside everywhere I went, there was literally nobody. People, um, which is one of the other reasons why I decided to go at the time that I did because I'd I'd be able to go and get close ups of. Um, for example, a small thing in Florence, as they say, it's the first graffiti. There's a little etching of what uh, of Leonardo uh, da Vinci on the wall, and usually you can't get to see things like that because the crowds are just so massive. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that... I chose not to do any tours because there were little bits. I mean, i I did take uh, I did take books with me, and I referenced what I wanted to see from well, mostly from Robert. Bob- Baba's book, 
but I like to go and put myself from point A to point Z on my own. Um, and I also didn't want to do any of the tour guides because they go and they tell you the sanitized history and what our conventional archaeology will tell you or what conventional religion will tell you. And I couldn't exactly say to them, well, in this book, I've read something completely different. Hmm. So I didn't want to really listen to that. The only formal tour that I did take, um, and I couldn't get in any other language, so I took an Italian guided tour through the, the Vatican Gardens. It was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. It's one of the coolest places I've, I've ever seen. Yeah, it sounds awesome. Um, yeah, I, again, I didn't know. That's interesting that they have all those uh, tours. You know, it would be also interesting take some sort of edible or entheogen and, you know, walk through the garden or the I, art, the artistic I, aspects. I did. Of, uh, yeah, so why don't you talk a little bit about that? You told me I wasn't allowed to talk about no, that. No, no, I, I didn't say that. You're allowed to talk about whatever you want. I just said you weren't allowed to. I was very nervous because I wanted to experience. I wanted to experience. I wanted to see if what I had felt that during trips. Like, almost kind of the religious experience that I'd had on psilocybin, on salvia, on, on any number of other substances, if I'd feel the same when I was high in the Vatican. So I didn't know what to take with me. I didn't know what would go through customs. So I took Hawaiian Woodroad seeds. Um, and I didn't really... That has LSA, right? That's the active compound. And... Yeah, I like them. I mean, for a long time, I was only a... I was only I was a psi vegan because I didn't want to get back into any kind of chemicals because I I spent three chaotic years with a gigantic coke habit and I just didn't want to put anything, I didn't want to do any chemicals. So, yeah, with Hawaiian woodrow seeds. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I think I didn't do enough to kind of feel anything, but it was just clarity. Like you see things in a lot more detail. Maybe it was just the idea that I'd taken psychedelics, that I was having more of an experience than anyone else around me. I was having a better time, people <laughs> watching. And I knew what my mission was when I when I went in there. And it wasn't just to go and have a gawk. I really wanted to see um, what exactly, you know, have has has the city of, of Thoth been built there? And yes, it has. And it... I don't, I don't know, but I mean, Mike, you know me, I, I ingest psychedelics for no good reason. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, but I wouldn't say no good reason, because when I talk to you, you have some sort of insight or spiritual aspect or mystical aspect of your journey. It's not like, like you said, when you were younger, where you're doing it and going to like a rave or something like that. So I, I, I think that even though you feel like, maybe sometimes it's it's done frivolously i would still say that from knowing you that there's still an element of intention and spiritual nature to it well the most spiritual experience was probably at pompeii when there was me and maybe 15 20 other people there um and that was one tour that i did take because i, I could walk around rome but i i'm not a i'm not good with driving on your side of the road i just can't do it um, so if I ever do leave the UK, it will either be Malta or Cyprus because they drive mm. on my side of the road. Uh, 
Yeah, we got to link I'm, you up with Laura Megalith Hunter. We got to get you. Oh, gotta, you guys got to make a amazing. video. No, she's amazing. I, I chat to her. She's 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 quite an extraordinary lady. That I think everyone should follow Megalith Hunter. Um, and I do need to give a shout out to Rick as well because if it hadn't been for Rick, I'd never have met you. Yeah, no. Shout out to RN RN Vu. Oh, and that was the other book that I took with me. Um, and I took it into the Vatican. There's a picture of me somewhere on Twitter holding Rick's. DMT. Nice. And I was going to some of the guides and I was pointing to pictures in this book and like showing them the DMT cover and then opening the book and saying, where would I be able to find this? And, you know, pointing to God and the brain on the Sistine Chapel. What do they say about the pine cone symbolism and all that? Like, what are they, when they discuss that, what are they saying that that means? They, they don't discuss it. They don't? They don't discuss it. It's just, a, it's just, it's just a statue. I mean, they'll say that it's to do with enlightenment, but they don't go back into any kind of meaningful symbolism about that. It's just about enlightenment and illumination. Um, but it's all in a very orthodox religious context. Hmm. Yeah, I guess so, that makes sense. Not that it should be the case, but that makes sense. Um, I mean, just. You know, you. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I have to stop myself from seeing symbols in everything and trying to maybe put mysteries into places that they don't belong, just because that's what I'm seeing. Or I've seen a, a ram at, at Luxor, or and now I'm seeing rams' heads all over Paris, all over Rome. Hmm. I've got to stop myself at some point and think, you know, you're gonna, you're going to drive yourself crazy if you carry on with all this, you know, parallel analysis. No, but there's something to it. I mean, you mentioned the whole. What did you call it? The um, the Egyptian, how it influences all the other cultures. Uh, you called it something earlier. Uh, the, the Egyptian continuity hypothesis. There you go. The Egyptian continuity hypothesis. That, that's, my, that's my word. But you're right. I mean, look, there's a, there's an obelisk at the Vatican, right? I mean, in the main. There are 13 of them. Yeah. But Rome. there's there's what's the big one, though, that's in the main square? Oh, um, interestingly, there's not much known about that. It's not It's not like the Ramesses one outside the Spanish Steps where we definitely know um, from what era that came from. The one at the Vatican is very, very obscure. It's mm. just there. Um, but even the shape of St. Peter's Square, that, that entire the ellipsis of it is built in... It's the original city of the sun. Hold on, let me... Yeah, but I mean, it's just like, and it's weird that they don't talk about it because there's all sorts of symbolism. Like, even like the Pope's staff has that pine cone on it. You have the Sumerian reliefs that have the pine cones with the tree of life. You have pine cones looking things. And are they pine cones? I have a theory that they might even be cannabis colas, the cola from the plant. You know, like I could totally... I don't know vibe off that you know, in some ways when you look at some of the displays and you look at some of their items and things like that you think and, and i mean they're sitting on top of the second biggest library to alexandria and you think are you guys trolling me <laughs> with your little sector do you, are you saying i i know i i know that you know that i know well there's tons of sumerian iconography and egyptian iconography too even the Lord's Prayer, you know, like the Our Father thing, that comes from the pr- a prayer to Pita, P-T-A-H, uh, which is oh, an see, Egyptian I, I god of creation. Yeah, yeah. So, like, there is this, like, 
causal line of influence. You know, I know people don't like the idea of like uniformitarianism, which is the idea that there's a slow progression of influence over time and there's not this fluctuation of knowledge. Like some people speculate like there's some sort of golden age and then it kind of reverts and then it goes through like these yuga cycles. Um, There are... um, there are all these different like theories, but like, yeah, I mean, in terms of what we're talking about, um, I think that there is definitely influence. Like I said, from being like into music and art, um, I wouldn't be able to do anything if I didn't have some sort of foundation to build something off of. Right. So, um, yeah, I don't think people just pop, pop up with knowledge out of nowhere. I do think that there's little bits and pieces that come from different places. Can I give you a little bit of, pop up out of nowhere idea well knowledge is one of the um the one of the sorry one of the rabbit holes that i fell into when i was reading this vatican heresy book by robert Caval was giordano bruno yeah um and his his mind maps in particular were of interest to me and then I, you know how I was mentioning the procession just now where all of these things were happening along a timeline of 11,500 years ago. Right. Um, and then we had the flood and the sea levels rose and all the land bridges closed, right? Right. Whenever you see one of those mind maps, it's always, it's concentric or it's zodiac in style. And I, and I wonder if... You know, Plato's allegory of the cave, he was quite allegorical. I wonder if Plato's Atlantis isn't a Bruno-esque kind of symbol for civilization that we need to decode to find out what exactly did happen before 11,500 BC, what happened before the flood. Yeah, I could totally see that. I mean, you know where I stand because I've kind of shifted my views over the years. I once thought Atlantis for sure was, you know, a specific place or civilization. Then I thought maybe it was some sort of global civilization. And now I'm at this point where I look at it like what you're saying in a way, which like Plato's cave, it's an allegory for paradigm shifts. And I'm looking at Atlantis now is a similar thing, but in terms of like this archetype of ends of civilizations or ends of, of beat times or cataclysmic events. So it's like, whether you believe Atlantis was a real place, uh, you know, that had like its own language and, and culture and things like that. It doesn't, to me, that doesn't matter. What's interesting is, is Plato was just trying to tell people like, Hey, this has happened a million times before it's going to happen again. Get your shit together, you know, get the facts straight. And I think that that's why you see a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, like Gobekli Tepe, intentionally buried, um, different places around the globe. Um, again, talk about all these cataclysms. You cannot go to an ancient culture without finding some sort of flood myth or cataclysmic myth. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's there's definitely something to that. But I think what you're pointing out is that you, you're saying that Plato um, created the story of Atlantis to, to – he encoded something in there where – people will be able to find out what happened before this younger Dryas impact or what happened before this cataclysmic flood that was recorded throughout history. A lot of it is, is image association. So is he saying, um, is it astronomical images? 
Is it uh, the whole image of the Temple of Man, or is it the inscriptions on the Temple of Man, or any inscriptions? Is it the inscriptions of cave people thousands and thousands of years ago? Um, what what is it? Yeah, no, I mean it's that's a great point. I mean, I've racked my brain on it. I think if somebody has a good case for Atlantis being an actual place, it, it's Randall Carlson. But outside of that, I haven't really heard I think, it. I think Atlantis was a culture because there was so many. Like a global all culture? Of these people have got, yeah, I think it was a, a culture of many schools of knowledge. Many of them were learning and, and practicing the same kind of principles and philosophies. I think that the world was a lot more as one than moons and moons and yet moons ago i don't i mean i don't they were not like us with bombs like Brome says with bombs and wars and hatred and you know strangers picking fight to strangers on the fucking internet i think that they were a much more harmonious set of cultures and they were interesting to each other and i don't know how they how they got to each other or how they came up with you know shared faces because even i mean if i say that the that this face of the sphinx looks like a sub-saharan african so does the face of an olmec really yeah the olmec i was going to discuss that with laura uh from megalith hunter she did a video did you see the video she did on the connection between the olmecs and 5meo dmt there i didn't think that there was any Ooh, no any evidence of ancient uh bufo use but she had this paper that I've been looking into. So we're going to discuss that when we, we tried to do an episode with her last week, but since I moved and just set up my new office, I had some technical difficulties, which I have since figured out. Um, if anybody's curious what those technical difficulties is, so they don't repeat, do not use a long, uh, coaxial cable to connect your cable to your modem. That was my issue. I was using a 15 footer and I had to switch to a two footer. So, you know. No, you're fine. That, that, that's what Simon thinks. Yeah, so that was that was the issue. Oddly enough, I I'm good with technology. I couldn't. I was racking my brain to figure it out, and that was that was like one of the last things I figured out. So, um, but yeah, so so we're gonna get into that. So if you haven't watched that video, Sandy, go back and watch it because I think you would really be interested in that. I have got so much stuff to watch. I mean, this is the other thing is I've got to filter out so much because I'm never gonna learn the answers to everything and I'm never going to be able to read all these books and I'm never, I do not want to spend my whole life on YouTube. I just want to learn about things as they pertain to me. And a lot of the stuff that I've found out or interests that I've come across are, um, in traveling or maybe even on, even on Twitter, which is how I'm speaking to you. It's like, uh, is Pandora's box actually a jar and was the jar full of kiki on? And was the kicky on what released Pandora's box? Ooh, juicy! I like it. These um, are the things that these are the things that keep me awake at night. Um, so let's pivot here because I want to get to one more thing before we wrap it up. Um, my wife Amanda's texting me how much longer, and I told her uh, fifteen minutes ish. So uh, we got about okay. fifteen minutes left, and. I am going to pull up some imagery here of Yonaguni. So, like, if anybody doesn't know what Yonaguni is, um, it's this submerged structure 
uh, geological structure under the waters of uh, Japan. And some speculate it is uh, man-made. Others speculate it is a natural structure. I'm more in the natural structure camp of things. Sandy is in more of the man-made structure of things. I'm going to try and convince Sandy to come to my side of the fence. However, I'm open to be I'm open to being you know taken to her side of the fence as well, or you know a little switcheroo. So. Here's one of the main images. I'll, I'll pull up like three or four images. But as you can see here, um, there is some weird kind of like angles there, right? That you wouldn't normally see in a that's, lot of... That's the turtle. Yeah. So like, um, and you see, look, so Sandy, you know, I would point to that back corner there where you start to see rounding of edges, almost like what you see around the base of the Sphinx um, in terms of like water erosion. You get what I'm okay. saying? Okay. Yeah. And then you see, to, to your point, though, you see what kind of looks like some sort of step or terracing back where those people are. I'll pull up a better image here. Hold on. All right. So this is more along the lines of what people look at when they think this could be some sort of ancient structure. You, It does look unnatural. I will give you that. Um, but, like, look at how big these steps or these terrace this terrace looking thing is compared to these people so i guess my question would be what function would it serve uh you know like what are you when when you think about it like what do you think about it as serving some sort of function or just a temple or what do you think's going on i mean i don't know what function it would have served um it could have been part of a city um it's I mean, firstly, let's just say I don't know that it's in the same way as we were talking about the Sphinx just now, and that could have started out as a lion. Yeah. Something about the site could have stood out to someone, and they would have said, we can enhance this. Hmm. So there is a little bit of stuff that I buy into where, you know, geologically it's possible that this kind of erosion could happen or rocks could have just snapped off and what looks if you even look behind those divers those look quite equal those steps yeah um so i there's a i don't know what's going on there i do know um that there is no debris where is the fallen debris why are there cleared paths? Why are there ruts? Why is there a henge there? Why is there an Olmec face there? And why are there very, very similar um, kind of rock patterns further inland? Because uh, oh, it, the, it was the Jomo culture, I think. It was the Jomo culture that Graham is saying built this. Because there are similar structures that he can go to that were built on land that would tie in with the same time as this would have been above water. So there was clearly a civilization at that time that would have known how to make that, that did understand solstices and that did understand temples and that would have been able to put a hinge in. Um, I don't know if you've got, I don't know how to bring up images because um, I'm, yeah, so, I'm such so... a tech person. I was going to pivot, though, from to give you my perspective. So you see what's going on here. You see that terracing. Yeah. Um, 
you're saying that it's man-made or chipped away. I'm saying that it's more natural made, and I'll show you why in a second here. Let me pull up this. So this is what Yonaguni looks above the water. As you can see, um, it kind of continues the same formations above the sea level. So, like, see how those rocks, those striations, those um, parallel striations there? Now imagine, yeah. imagine like seismic activity happening. I could totally see, see like how even the the parallel striations, uh, you have then perpendicular lines that run through that. Now imagine some sort of seismic activity, you know, disrupting that, and then you could see some sort of chipping off. So, see down then below where the green part is, you start to see kind of what you see below the water, and then there's even a bigger structure behind that towards the back of the picture. So that's why I think it's natural. I'll pull up another one. Same thing here. You can see it just looks like a continuation, like as above, so below. It does. It looks like a continuation of what's happening above water is happening below the water. And just to give you my perspective, I've I I, I get where you're going at. You know, like and I this is. But if you look at like what's on my left, there are boulders and little stones and all kinds of things like that, and and even tinier ones and there's an entire load of debris to the left of my screen right so so if so grams so they're diving around that path why isn't that path um filled with debris why why has that been cleared no i i completely it could be some sort of slow thing that happened over time i don't know i don't know i'm not a geologist i'm, I'm just part of those two megaliths that are almost equal in size just fall into a crevice and not crack just just like that right so so my whole thing is um i've looked into the woo stuff uh very much so um you know i think i even brought it up to dr gregory little when he was on too because he's been scuba diving around a lot of these sites um and we talked about like bimini road similar thing kind of in a, in a way is it man-made is it natural you know there's an argument you know there uh but with this so I saw a Japanese geologist talking about how this specific type of rock in this specific location with seismic activity, uh, anytime there's any sort of like actual like intense seismic activity, the rock will start to chip off in clean breaks because of the type of stone that it is, which, I mean, there are stones that do that. I mean, let's be real. Um, but to your point, I could be swayed based on what I'm seeing. I don't see any sort of... The main thing for me is I don't see any function. I don't see any like inklings of civilization in that structure from looking at it. But I would say this: um, let's say before the last ice or before the Younger Dryas, I could totally see that being some sort of rock quarry or some sort of place where they, you know, like how they have Tura in Egypt or these different rock quarries. I could totally see it being a place where they quarried rock or stone to use for megalithic structures or something like that. If that mm. makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I can see your point of view as just, I think, when when Graham did that dive, he took a German uh, geologist with him, who was also saying pretty much the same things that you're saying. Um, but then he took him a couple of hundred miles away to another site just off the Japanese coast that had similar kind of rock split offs that were step steps like this. Yeah. Um, 
but hinges, and it seemed to have a little bit more of a temple-like appearance. Okay. And it was then that he looked at those two and he thought, this, he, he didn't then have an explanation because they were more monumenty kind of looking things that I, I don't know. Well, I, I want to check it out. Just one... If you can, where did you, is it a video? Is it a, what is that? It's what Karama. It's, it's Karama. It's called Karama. Yeah. But what were, what were you watching with them? Was it a YouTube video where they were? Oh yeah. It was called, I'll send you the link. It's yeah. I want to check that out. And actually I'll probably try and add the link down below the episode after we're done. So this is from, this is from 10 million years ago. Hmm. It was a channel four documentary. Um, that Graham Hancock filmed. Okay. Uh, no, I'm, I'm definitely interested well. in it. Like I said, I'm anybody that knows and listens to our show knows that while I have my own philosophies and theories and everything, I am open-minded to my mind being changed. Um, and I currently think it's natural, but I am open-minded to that not being the case, as I am with anything else, you know, like... I personally believe that all the Egyptian stuff is somewhat dated to roughly around the same time, like the right times, but I can be swayed. You know, they just found what last year, uh, that woman found a shard of, uh, wood from the great, that was taken from the great pyramid years ago, uh, that they dated and found it, it dates back to a thousand years to the previous dating of the great pyramid. So. Yeah. But I mean, either you, you don't know because everyone said that Malta is between six and seven thousand years, and the hypogeum is built upon layers upon layers upon layers until eventually they found a tooth in it. Right. And they said there is no ways because oh, and they had millions of deer skulls and human skulls. And they said that when there'd been seismic activities, that the skulls had fallen in um, and were buried over. But there was a tooth that they found and. It's dating. I don't know how they're dating at all. The, the arguments over the dating, but it's impossible for that to have been dislodged or buried or filled in by any more sediment. So, mm. I mean, you're going to have to go back and you're going to have to redate all of these things. And it's keeping an open mind. And I think, I mean, I think you're right. Well, we're right to be healthily. Well, approach things with a healthy degree of skepticism. Like I said, I've you know I've traveled around and my mind is like, oh, this looks like this, and oh, looks this looks like this, and if I'm tripping, then it's even more like, oh, I can't believe this looks like this. <laughs> but I do think that Yonaguni is is something that, as above, so below, was enhanced in some kind of a way. It fits in with all kinds of unland stone circles. It fits in with the entire. Zhoman uh, way of constructing things, um, and I think that it'll, it's just one of those. I mean, Graham is—he's not pushing for it. It's the Bimini Road. Could he's even said that could be um, man-made, and he said he would have actually gone with that argument if it hadn't been for—I think it was granite. There was a granite that isn't that isn't found in that area. There's a there are granite stones and the stories about ships crashing and mm -hmm. losing their loads there just didn't make sense. Um, things like I mean we could do you can't do analysis of rock unfortunately, but there's some, but you you can't you can't radiocarbon date rock. You can there's um, 
thermoluminescence dating, which can date like the the layers of the outside, like the weathering um, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's no way to really, especially like underwater like that. And to your point too, you make a good point in sense of if that is natural, where, where are these big chunks that are falling off the side, um, below? Like did, I, I don't have enough good pictures. Maybe those are below what we're seeing. Uh, but from the pictures I have seen, I haven't seen this debris from these seismic events breaking off these, uh, huge, you know stone pieces so okay well i tell you what i will send you those links i'm desperately nervous because whenever anyone asks me something i know the answers but i just no look you look when we started you were like a deer deer in headlights terrify me you were like a deer in headlights when we first started no no no. i'm telling you you, but now i've got to now i've got to say what i need to say in front of the whole internet okay and it's it's embarrassing okay no, I mean, I don't have anything to... I've already said what I oh, was going to say. I thought you were about to say something that was super embarrassing. <laughs> no, I thought you were about to... I've had to, I always have to explain because <laughs> when I'm going... When I jump onto these threads, it's like that guy said, oh, everybody's face right now, is that I just have random ideas that appear to me out of absolutely nowhere. Now, I could be perfectly sober. I could be tripping. I could be reading. I could be doing anything. But, I mean, I'm perpetually in, in thought motion and I wind up in... I mean, I'm trying to read um, a book by someone else that I, I, I've got quite into panpsychism as well, and I'm trying to get through a book now mm. by a guy called Peter Tostead Hughes. And I know nothing about any of these philosophers. In fact, I hated philosophy because my brother did it, and he used to quote Nietzsche to me and say, the second mistake God made was woman. And after I just, it just all sounded so depressing to me. So I've... I'm slowly collating little pieces of information, and once I've firmed up my knowledge around those, I'll start getting a little bit more. Nietzsche is depressing. I don't. I'm not a big Nietzsche. I mean, I know a lot of people Kyle, like. I am oh, Kyle not. Kyle is so into Nietzsche at the time. It was Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, and I just thought this is. I mean, this sh- is terrible. I, I actually prefer Schopenhauer. Is pretty depressing too, but I prefer I think Schopenhauer to Nietzsche. But uh, but, but your no, point. I wish I'd paid attention. But now, the, now, now I'm, are you, now I'm are you reading modes of are you reading modes of sentience right now? Is that the book that you're reading? I'm I'm reading it and many others because I've I now have to go back and find out who all these people were and I've got to study philosophy and I wish sometimes I wish I ha- I was an octopus and I could use because I like my current life and I like I'm gonna give you a couple recommendations for what you're saying right now that'll that that I like that help me. Um, so to your, to your you're saying you want to go back to listen a great podcast is called Philosophize This. Um, I highly recommend it, and you can actually each episode separated by philosopher. Some of them have like a few parts to them, uh, but there's like a whole episode on like whatever you want, Schopenhauer, Plato, whatever. Um, so there's that. Another thing is there's this on Audible, there's a, um, it's called Great Courses. I've recommended these in the past, but there's a Great Courses um, on Philosophy of Mind. Um, I think that might even be the name of it, Great Courses Philosophy I have of Mind. To, I have to get through, yeah, so um, essentially that was, oh, well, he was another person that I discovered via the Vi on Twitter. Um, so... I'll eventually get around to it, um, but I'm trying. To, I'm trying to. 
when I, as I said, when I join these conversations, it's generally with people that are that are widely read and have been studying this stuff for years and years and years and years while I've been out traveling and partying and doing what I do. Well, that's awesome. So, you have real I know life. The answers. You have I real just life don't experience. Know them as, as as technically as as all of you guys. Look, I could read every book in the world and whatever, but you know, truth is, is you have real boots on the ground experience. You've gone to the Vatican, you've gone to Egypt, you've gone to places I've never been. So as much as reading about it or knowing all the facts or this or that is great, I think that there's obviously something to be said about experiencing these things in person. I mean, that's the way they're meant to be experienced. So I think that you sell yourself short, Sandy. Um, and it, it does, it, does it ever bother you? You know how I've now, I've gone to Egypt and I've seen what's there. And I've gone to, you know, all these cities and I'm I'm going to be going to Greece shortly. Yeah, that bothers me that you're going to Greece and I'm not. So yeah, <laughs> that, that does bother me. Yeah, I, I just, I want to, I, I need to get off this island. Um, but I, I wonder what we are leaving. When people dig through our, our now, what are people going to think about us? They're and not going to find much because everything's going to rust. We, if we disappear if we tomorrow... Done, Two, three hundred years from now, people aren't going to find anything, though, because everything's so... They're just going to find wires and Shittily shit. built, yeah. It's just, think about, like, back... We're finding, like, stone structures that'll stand the test of time and cataclysms and different things. The stuff we're building will rust out or dissipate into nothing within a few hundred years. Like, a, a, a car, like, let's say a VW Bug, I think they say that that can rust out in a hundred years, so... You give a skyscraper a few hundred years, and it's probably going to be very little to nothing, I would imagine. So, well, I don't know. I just, I think that if if we were more actively pursuing how to continue the continuity hypothesis, we would all be the better for it. And that and that is pretty much what I'm trying to do in my all over the show kind of way is just learn as much as I can and put together as much as I can. So when I do ride the duet, I go into my next life with a little bit more than I know now. And I can learn a little bit more then and then and then and in, in perpetuity. And I think that's what life's about. That's what traveling's about. That's what's arguing with you about Yodaguni on, on the internet is about. No, I mean, it's, that's what it is all about. And I like, I like having differences, opinions with people and listening to their perspective and why they think that I'm so sick of like, just hearing people agree or whatever, you know, and if you can't come to terms, you know, agree to disagree. That's like a lost art too. Right. So, um, I just don't like the crazy people that are trying to put any old shit on the internet just for clicks and money that makes absolute, I mean, anyone, well, that's, if, that, if I had no, that's what the, that's what the algorithm, profit. but that's what the algorithm you know goes for that's oh. unfortunately but so it's kind of like a chicken and the egg thing you know but i agree with you but it just seems like and it's I, part of it oh mike do you know what this reminds me of and i did write it down somewhere is the mud flood it's the mm. tartarians and the mud floods i i saw this on the internet three days ago and it is like a conspiracy theorist's idiot of idiots younger dryers thing <laughs> where they were have you heard about these things? I yeah, so I so he, I will say this: anybody I've heard talk about the Tartarian stuff, 
are people that are very cautious about anything that they say, if that makes sense. Not that, uh, look, <laughs> it's just, it's just but based on what you're saying, it's like the people that are talking about this are some of the craziest people that talk about some of the craziest other shit, so. But anyway, so I will try and be more coherent next time, but that is a, that is a, that is a you were, look, manly people's brief history of Sandy. <laughs> You started off like a deer in headlights, and you and you, you you got into it, and you, you started vibing and flowing, and it was all good. And I think everybody that like you know tuned in really enjoyed you know, it. I mean, we've got more thumbs up and eyes on this episode so far than uh, a lot of other episodes. I haven't even done. looked. I haven't even. I've just turned it off. So, uh, but the other thing is, is this was the inaugural episode of us streaming live to Twitter as well. So, well. I'm glad because my nature impels me to be experimental. No, I like that. I'm the same way. It is just so. But thanks for having me on. It's been absolutely. It's it's been a long time, and I mean, there's so much that we've been discussing over four years. It'd be impossible for me to to chat. No, we're gonna have you back. We're gonna have you back on. We'll have you next time we have you on. We'll make sure Maurice is here too. So the mo man. Man, and then we're gonna make him shut up the whole time while we talk. Shut up, Maurice. No, you have to. You know what? Whenever Maurice speaks, he says really, really deep stuff. No, he does. I think you should let him speak more. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. You, you guys speak. I'll shut up. No, 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 no. Anyway, listen. You, you get off to to Amanda and, and Asha. Give them both my love. Yeah, I will. And you give Simon our love. That little uh, that little guy's back there chewing on bones. I I, I know what's going on. Uh, but listen, uh, listen, Sandy. I really appreciate this. Sandy is our top escapee. She is one of <laughs> those for for real. Out of like, all the people you've ever had on your podcast, I can't believe this. I do get nice messages and emails and things like that. But Sandy is one person that I've engaged with on a regular basis for the last like four years. So I wanted to get her on here. I'm glad we got her on here. Um, and we're going to have her back on. And I think she uh, has a lot to offer. And I really appreciate uh, you sharing your experiences and some of those stories I don't think anybody can top. Um, so, especially the Vatican one. Uh, but listen, Sandy, you know, Maurice and I love you. You're welcome back on the show anytime, of course. Thanks, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll do this again soon. And if anybody wants to follow Sandy, I have the link to her Twitter uh, account. I, don't, I, just post, I just post nonsense. She posts good memes like memes <laughs> you know that have to do with like ancient civilizations and like funny I'm, ufo I'm, memes and all sorts I'm of stuff i'm not posting any more memes because my favorite one i just can't all right oh I, I like that one actually that's a good meme i can't i cannot i i honestly i just can't post that you should post it after this episode but if, if you don't want to I understand uh you but yeah go f- and you and you get the dms <laughs> Go go follow tw- go follow uh sandy's twitter down below if you want to support our show uh, click the link tree down below, and you know, in terms of what we have, we have a Patreon with exclusive, tons of exclusive content with a lot of the different, you know, top researchers and guests that we've had on. Uh, we also uh, have a merch store with designs that I've created myself. Uh, one of them is actually um, uh, inspired by Sandy. I call it the Sandy, actually. So. Go check that out, and uh, yeah, if you, uh, easy way to support the show is just go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leave us a five star review or a nice review, and we really appreciate that. So, but uh, I just want to say that again, I really appreciate it, Sandy, 
And um, look, we love everybody. Stay safe out there, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace. Cheers.